Bet you all got really excited when you saw Danny was here today. There you go. Anybody in a hurry for lunch? That's good. I hope not. <laughs> I've told you I'm trying to set him up better so that if he goes long next week, it won't be as long as I go. So, It could happen. So, you know, as far back as I can remember in my childhood, and, and I know my mother will argue with me about this, but... Um, that's why I said as far back as I can remember. When I was a kid, into my teenage years, into my the sunset of my teenage years, I always wanted to join the Air Force. Six years old. See, I told you she'd argue with me. Um, there were times in a fit of... Um, parental idol worship, where I thought it would be cool to be a farmer like my dad. Um, and then, then I started following dad on the farm and said, no, no, no. Um, and there was one point where, uh, probably around the age of four or five, because that's pretty normal, where I wanted to be a firefighter. Um, really what I discovered later on in life was that I just liked started starting fires. Um, putting them out wasn't necessarily in the, you know, if the garbage had to be burnt, I'm your guy. I love to set fires. I am not an arsonist. Um, I'm pretty sure that whole fireman thing came from watching the old TV show Emergency. Any of you remember that? A a few of us, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That may have had something to do with not wanting to be a firefighter anymore. Um, but but I can tell you that for the most part, my dreams of adulthood were joining the Air Force. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and I was heavily influenced by Dad, you know, because he told me how great the Air Force was um, for the, the short period of time that he was in it, how much he wished, he wished he'd have been able to stay in and make a career of it. And, and the Air Force was just the greatest thing on earth, and, and so I wanted to do that. And so when I turned 17, I entered the delayed enlistment program and I shipped out to Lackland Air Force Base on the 24th of June, 1992. Almost 30 years ago. For those of you that are friends with family on Facebook, Gabe, my nephew, Brenda's son, just went to MEPS and signed up on the delayed enlistment program. And he'll be going in on June 21st of 2022, almost 30 years to the day after I joined. And of course, Liam's in the Air Force and Warren has some delusions of wanting to join the military. So, you know, it's it's kind of a nice family thing. Fast forward to 2002, February of 2002, I was down here for a school at Keesler Air Force Base for the third time in my Air Force career. Now, I had been down here in December of 2001. That was the first time I set foot in this church. Uh, there's a whole big story behind that. Um, for whatever reason, me and, and one other guy from the base wound up in the college and career uh, Sunday school class, which was awkward since we were both 
you know, midway through our military careers, and the college and career class was a bunch of 19-year-olds. Um, so that was weird. Um, but in 2002, I came down here, um, and I had driven from Utah to Biloxi for this six-week-long course. Five weeks into that course, one of my instructors, a very good friend of mine, who just retired from civil service about a month ago, pulled me out into the hallway for a private chat. Now, if you've ever spent any time around the military, that is typically not a good thing, right? But in this case, it was not a bad thing. He wanted to, um, he wanted to do something that he has only done three or four times in his 47-year Air Force career, of which 27 to 30 years of it was at Keesler as an instructor. And that thing that he wanted to do was to invite me to become an instructor. He challenged me. He said, you know, I think you've got what it takes. I want you to, I want you to consider coming down here to be an instructor. And so I took that home. I talked to, to Steph, um, from, you know, my perspective, from, from a human perspective, there wasn't anything more going on than his recognition that I might be a good instructor. Of course, when God gets into the mix, then all bets are off, right? So when I got back to Utah, I posed this question to Steph to see how she would feel about moving to the Gulf Coast. We had been here before. Like I said, uh, we got married when I was in uh, tech school here in 1992-1993. We lived out on Judge Siegel Avenue. If you're familiar with Judge Siegel, you know that's kind of a sketchy neighborhood. It was back then, too. And uh, so I wanted to make sure she was okay with it. She said yes. And then I got picked up for instructor duty. 17 years ago, August 2004, I signed in at Keesler to begin my journey. And I'm looking around the room, and I see a whole bunch of faces that are saying, what in the world does this have to do with Scripture? Bear with me. Because in the military, we get orders. We go where we're told to go, right? When, when they hand you a piece of paper that says, you are hereby assigned to, you pack up your stuff and go. We have a process by which we can let the Air Force know where we want to go. Um, they, they call it a dream sheet because that's what it's worth. Um, but when it comes to instructor duty, there's something different about instructor duty. You actually have to apply for instructor duty most of the time. Unless we have a hard time getting instructors, then you have to, you have to just suck it up when they tell you you're going to be one. Um, but when I was in that class, my instructor challenged me to a different path than I had been on for the previous 10 years. So I was, I was a network guy. I was a technology guy. I was, I did computers and, and, and cabling and switches and routers and all this technological stuff. And then all of a sudden I was going to be put in front of a classroom teaching people. It was completely different, completely off the track. And that challenge 20 years ago has resulted in a lot of things that I never would have expected in a million years. 
um, to include this right here. Because had it not been for Randy Simmons giving me that challenge in 2002, I wouldn't have put in to be an instructor and we would not be here at Bay Vista. Here's what this has to do with Scripture. Flip open to John's Gospel. Back in chapter 1, and we are going to be starting in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. And I can hear Natalie again saying, boy, that's awful ambitious for you. Because that's a lot. That's a lot of verses. This call to something completely different happened about 2,000 years ago. And there are millions upon millions of changes that have happened because of this call. So if you would all please stand with me for our scripture this morning. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you going? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found him, the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Please have a seat. So the gospel takes us back to the Jordan River, where John's baptizing, standing there with some of his disciples, and Jesus goes past again. And John again points to him and introduces him as the Lamb of God. Um, just a little side note, little tangent. Remember in Scripture, when you see something that's repeated multiple times, it's probably important. Okay, now go back to my instructor story. As an instructor, we are taught very, 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 very clearly not to emphasize points that the student needs to pay attention to in order to pass the test. 
what they call podium kicking or foot stomping. They tell us not to do that because we don't want to just give the students the answer to the test. Instead, we emphasize the stuff that's important for the student for their job. In this case, Jesus being introduced as the Lamb of God is important. Not for a test, but for our life. So that's something that if you underline in your Bible, you might want to underline and do a little research on. John has used this term twice around his disciples to refer to Jesus. They had to have recognized that it was important. Now, one of those two disciples, Andrew, Peter's brother, followed Jesus probably to investigate what John was talking about. They had heard John refer to Jesus as the one whom the Spirit settled like a dove, the one that the voice of God had announced, this is my son, the one in whom I am well pleased. They had heard John say, this is the one who's coming and I'm not even worthy to tie or untie his shoes. So they were interested. Now remember, these two are called disciples. Show of hands, no words, just hands. Does anybody know what the word disciple means? Okay, Danny, you're disqualified. (laughs) Does anybody who does not have studies in Greek or Latin or Hebrew know what the word disciple means? Kind of. There's a lot more to it than that. This is, this is one of those churchy words. Remember, I've talked about those words that we use in church all the time that we just kind of assume because we use them all the time that everybody knows what they mean. Disciple. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, entry number two, says that a disciple is a convinced adherent of a school or individual. One who gives full loyalty and support to another. The Greek word means, uh, well, it comes from a verb. The Greek noun comes from a verb that means to learn or to understand. So a disciple is one who learns or understands. In the sense uh, that it's used in Scripture here, being a disciple is something that is voluntary. There's a difference between a disciple and a student. Okay? Every one of us here has been a student at one point in time or another. And I'm relatively certain we can all say that we have had teachers that we really, really, really enjoyed having as our teacher. And then there were the other ones. Right? And so when it comes to the other ones, you were most definitely a student. You were not there voluntarily, right? That's why the the state calls it compulsory attendance. You have to be there, right? You didn't get to choose who the teacher was until you got late into high school, if you were fortunate enough to have a choice, you know, because there were some schools, some schools where you don't have a choice because there's one teacher for that subject. But those teachers that were the ones that made an impression on us that we spent more time learning from. I know you've mentioned your your speech uh, teacher who made such a great impression on you that I fuss at you every Sunday after sermon. 
Because if you have not noticed, Danny was such a disciple of his speech teacher that he moderates his voice to where you can barely hear him at some points during the sermon. Have any of you else noticed that? Can you even hear me right now? (laughs) He could. He's got Superman ears. So a disciple is voluntary. You can't be forced to give loyalty and support to somebody. And there's another aspect in English where, where we use the word discipline. And it comes from the same Latin word. And it means training that corrects or molds or perfects the mental faculties or moral character of another. And there's even a discipline that we talk about in in the electronics world where we use electrical signals that are constant to bring signals that are unconstant into alignment. And it's called discipline. It's bringing things together into alignment. A disciple is somebody who has voluntarily put themselves under another person's training and instruction in order to correct, mold, or perfect their moral character. A student who voluntarily gives loyalty and support to the teacher. That's Andrew. They had accepted John as a true prophet, And they followed him in order to become more holy, more godly in their thoughts and deeds, and probably to see where it was going to lead. And if John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, I'm going to go see what he's talking about. I don't think they realized they were about to shift who they were disciples of. They followed him to where he was staying. They stayed the remainder of the day. John, there's a funny little note. John is really terrible about using time in his gospel because John's gospel isn't really written in a chronological, you know, first this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. He throws time in there like, oh, by the way. And so where he tells us they stayed with him because it was the 10th hour. What, what, What does that mean? Well, why would they stay with him? The 10th hour would have been around 4 p.m., give or take, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So it would have been expected for them to share a meal. Jesus would have been talking and teaching. They were investigating who Jesus was. And this is one of the few places where we meet Andrew. And I know I've said this a couple of times because Danny has referred to me saying this a couple of times. Whenever we encounter Andrew, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. And so who does Andrew bring this time? Peter. He goes and he finds Peter and he says, we found the Messiah. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your brother coming up and saying, dude, you ain't going to believe this. The long-awaited deliverer, the anointed one, the Christ, we found him. Now imagine you're the brother sharing this news with 
Peter. I've told you all before, Peter is my favorite of the disciples because he spends more time putting his foot in his mouth. John doesn't tell us how Peter responded. This is purely, purely imagination on my part. But I have to imagine, based on everything else that I have read about Peter in the Gospels, that his response was something along the lines of, sure, right, whatever. A little snarky, a little skeptical, a little sarcasm maybe. And so Andrew said, come and see. Now think about Jesus' impression on them. He hasn't spent that much time with Jesus. John said the Lamb of God. Andrew followed. They stayed the rest of the evening. The next thing we're told is Andrew went and found Peter. Jesus made an impression. And when Peter shows up, Jesus says, um, you are Simon, son of John, or if you like the more traditional reading, Simon Bar-Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. A lot of people make a big deal out of Jesus declaring Simon's name to be Peter because that, you know, that's a, a precursor to Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is asking the disciples who everybody thinks that he is. And then he, he says, okay, who do you think that I am? And Peter makes that great declaration. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter says, you are the rock. Well, that's important. I don't think that's the point that John's trying to make right here. And that's because of the context of the rest of the passage. The, the point Jesus is trying to make right here is, I know you. I know who you are. You are more than just some random guy that I just met. I know you. And I say that because of what he says later on to Nathaniel. When he's introduced to Nathaniel, he knows Nathaniel. I'm going to jump ahead to the next verse, verse 43. See, we're making good time. Another one of those places where John makes a reference to time. He says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. I'm going to do a review quiz. Over the last couple of weeks, I've told you there are some important tools to have when you're studying the Bible. One of them, I said, is to have a mirror or your camera facing you so that when you, when you point at those chuckleheads in Scripture, you can look at and, and see that you're one of those chuckleheads, right? Okay, so you got to have that mirror right next to them because you do, you and I do the same stupid things that they did back then. We just have technology now. Right? Another thing that you need to have is what? A dictionary to make sure you know what the words are that are being used. Doesn't have to be a big fancy Greek and Hebrew dictionary. It helps. But you need an English dictionary too. 
And what is the third thing you ought to have? A map. Because it's really easy for us to think that when John says the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and 15 minutes later he was there. (laughs) A straight line path through Samaria, which would not have been the route that Jesus took, would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 miles. Taking the path that he probably would have taken would have put it closer to 90 to 100 miles. At a very brisk pace of four miles an hour, it would have been a 23-hour walk. You know, barring all the jokes, you know, what what kind of vehicle did the, the disciples drive, right? It was a Honda because they were all of one accord. Ha ha, dad joke, okay? They walked. They didn't ride. Only really rich people rode. They didn't have a chariot. They didn't have a wagon. They didn't have a cart. They walked. Even taking the shortcut through Samaria, it would have taken about 19 hours. At four miles an hour. That's a really brisk pace. It probably would have been more along the lines of two, maybe three miles an hour. So you're talking days to get to Galilee, not minutes. And oh, by the way, when the sun went down, you stopped because there were thieves and bandits and brigands and all kinds of other stuff that could have, not to mention the wildlife, that could assault you overnight. And so you would set up camp. This is why it's important to have a map when you study Scripture because it's really easy to get the wrong idea, especially in the Gospels because we move back and forth so often between Jerusalem and Galilee and Galilee to Jerusalem or from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Distances are real. And John doesn't tell us how soon Jesus got there. He says the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. A week later, he got there. We don't know where he encountered Philip and Nathaniel. We don't know if he encountered them as soon as he left Jerusalem, if he encountered them as soon as he got to Galilee or somewhere along the path, not from John's gospel, because John's gospel isn't supposed to tell us that. What is the focus of what John is talking about here? The call of the disciples. What it means when God calls us to do something. Jesus found Philip. Philip was from the same town as Andrew and Peter. May have been friends with Andrew and Peter. We don't know. Philip found his friend Nathaniel, told him the same thing that Andrew told Peter. With a little more specifics. I love this. I absolutely love this. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. You know, there are people who pointed at that and said, see, the disciples didn't even believe in the virgin birth. Jesus is like three days into his public ministry here. Nobody knows anything about Jesus' birth except Mary and Joseph. Philip is just saying, this is Jesus, bar Joseph, right? Just just like 
uh, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of. It's like a last name. He had nothing to say about Jesus' virgin birth. But he did say Jesus is from Nazareth. And there's something in the Bible that you only find in the Bible. And that's the humanity of the disciples. Because what does Andrew say? Nazareth? Really? Nazareth? You sure he's not from somewhere down south? Because ain't nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It was pretty much universal in Jewish thought that since Galilee was like a leftover remnant of the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was made up of uh, a bunch of people who had rebelled against God and spent so much time in captivity they really wandered away from uh, their faith, and it was descendants of this melting pot of Hebrew and Gentiles and, and all these different... I mean, it was it was a really metropolitan area. And you're claiming the Messiah came from Galilee? let alone Nazareth? Nazareth is like the most insignificant town. And I was looking for a parallel. You know, we, we, most of us have been here for, for a long time. Many of us have been here since, you know, the dirt was laid down and created Mississippi. <laughs> but we all remember what uh, we were called after uh, Hurricane Katrina when we were referred to as the landmass, right? There are still people who, who have no idea where Mississippi is. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question. How many of you know where Cuevas, Mississippi is? Anybody? It is, according to the census, the smallest municipality in the state of Mississippi. So imagine being a person in D.C. and having somebody tell you, we met the next president of the United States. He's from Cuevas, Mississippi. What? Where? Mississippi, really? Do they even have paved roads in Mississippi? I've had people ask that question. And so Philip challenged Nathaniel to come and meet Jesus. And Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel was a straight shooter. Plain spoken. Even when he was faced with the possibility that this supposed Messiah had come out of Nazareth of Galilee, his re reaction was plain spoken. He wasn't going to sugarcoat things. And so when Nathaniel responded to Jesus, how do you know anything about me? How do you know who I am? What do you know? Let me, let me rephrase that. 
Oh, so you're a prophet, huh? From Galilee. From Nazareth. Prove it. And Jesus said, before Philip came to get you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now that's <laughs> okay. But apparently it was significant to Nathaniel. Because his reaction was a little bit over the top. But Jesus had spoken to him something that only Jesus could know. Rabbi, you were the Son of God, you were the King of Israel. You remember Nathaniel is plain spoken? He's speaking the truth. Jesus lets him know he's going to see things greater than these as he followed Jesus. He tells him he's going to see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, uh, that there is a reference to the vision of Jacob, Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending. Um, that, that could be, there could be a parallel there when he called Nathaniel an Israelite because uh, it was not long thereafter that Jacob, who saw that vision, wrestled with God and had his name changed to Israel. Could be. It's also good to note the word angel can also be translated as messenger, perhaps indicating the teaching that Jesus would share with the world in His ministry before sacrificing His life for His people. We can dig all day. But the point of this is the call. In John's Gospel, we drop off with the disciples for a little bit. When we go into chapter 2, we we look at the wedding feast at Cana. And Jesus' miracle. And then we look at the cleansing of the temple. And it's a while before we pick back up with the disciples. So you might be wondering what to do with a message like this. It's good historical background, right? Because I always just do historical backgrounds and leave you with nothing to take from it. If all this was for was knowledge, we could be in trouble. What does, what does Scripture say about knowledge? Knowledge does what? Puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. You can be the best at Bible trivia, which is an oxymoron. But if you don't do anything with it, if you don't let it do anything with you, you're in trouble. So what does Paul say about Scripture? When you read a passage like this, when you encounter a passage like this, you have to remember what Paul said to Timothy about what Scripture is for. He said, all Scripture is what? God breathed. That means that God gave it to us for a purpose. And then he says that it's profitable for correction, for reproof, for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness. In other words, it's good to teach us something that we can apply. Last week, I told you about how God took a hold of me in 1988. 
this morning. I told you about the call that I received to come to the Gulf Coast. I, I got that. I heard the audible voice of Randy Simmons. I've told you before, I have never heard God's audible voice. I'm pretty sure if I did, my heart would explode. Now, he could stop that, but thankfully, he's never seen fit to speak to me audibly. Two thousand six, I heard a call to become more than just an instructor on Keesler. The voice that I heard was the voice of Dave Atkins. See, because Dave was telling people that he needed somebody to be an assistant Sunday school teacher in case he needed to be out. That was the voice that I heard. The rest of the story was God that I heard. Our Sunday school class at the time was on the second floor of the EEC. We were in the yellow room, and Dave was saying this as we were walking across the parking lot to go to Sunday school. That, hey, I need an assistant Sunday school teacher. And before my foot hit the first step, I stumbled. Because while God has never spoken to me, He has poked me in the back of the head. That's you. Uh, okay. So after Sunday school, I told Dave, hey, I think I'm supposed to be that assistant Sunday school teacher. 2007, after I surprised a whole lot of people by officially joining the church and being baptized. I heard another call. This time it was from Troy Edwards. Would you consider being a deacon in the church? What's a deacon? Not on the way home. That's you. Oh, got it. 2008. Nobody asked me. God decided to change things up. 2008. Before Danny got here, I was on the pastor search committee. We were looking for Danny. We didn't know it yet. Walking around the block in my neighborhood, talking to my beautiful wife, and trying to keep my dog's leashes from tangling up. All of a sudden, I quit talking. That's weird for me. <laughs> Man, tough crowd. And after about a half a lap around the neighborhood, she says, what's wrong? I said, you ain't going to believe this. God wants me to pursue becoming a pastor. No. I still had four years left in the military. Surely I've got to be wrong. Surely this cannot be. No. And then, you know, in the beginning of 2009, I started preaching here 
every Sunday until Danny got here. Because this is his position. This is where God called him. But God called me to the ministry. And then in 2011, I got a phone call from an old fella up in Gulfport. Hey, understand you're looking for a church. Well, no, not really. <laughs> kind of like the one I'm at right now. And for seven years, I pastored at Olivet. See, Jesus isn't here right now to give me a call. Jesus isn't here to say, come follow me. But his people are. And quite often, he will use his people to bring a call. Now see, it was in 2008 that I was licensed to the ministry. Got the certificate hanging in the hallway. God had a purpose. He still has a purpose. Now see, sometimes that purpose doesn't work out the way we thought it would. Andrew, he was following John. He was following the prophet. And then all of a sudden, his path took a turn. Now we also know from the other Gospels that Peter and Andrew and James and John, they had a vocation. What did they do for a living? They were commercial fishermen. They were not weekend fishermen. There's a difference. They left their nets because Jesus called them to leave their nets. How about Matthew? He's a tax collector. I imagine he probably left that job pretty easily. With the, you know, Romans mad at him. Sometimes God uses his people to call us to a path that's different than one we would expect. See, God called me to be a pastor. And he put me at Olivet Baptist Church for seven years. You know what he didn't tell me? By the way, this church is dead, and you're going to be the one to put it to rest. You know why he didn't tell me that? Because he knows Bill. <laughs> because I would have said no. I almost said no anyways. As a matter of fact, we set a test for that call. A test. I put out a fleece for Pete's sake. I'm not a person who does. I'm not a person who uses those words. If the church votes unanimously to call me to be the pastor, then it has to be and I'll go. How many Baptist churches vote unanimously for anything? There's always that one person who votes against the rest of the church 
just because he didn't go to church that day. Legitimately, <laughs> he wasn't there. <laughs> and so I went. And then at the end of that seven-year process, when we finally put Olivet to, to rest, God had brought another body of Christ in to take over the property and to continue the work in the neighborhood. Wow. So I've accepted this. Okay, God, where do you want me to go? Go back to Bay Vista. Oh, oh, oh okay. I don't have a problem with that. I like this place. But why would he do that? I don't know. I have an idea. I have an idea because my brother here who needs times like this where he can rest knowing that there's somebody who will keep shoveling out feed for the flock. But when God decides that we have a purpose, we have to make the choice whether we're going to follow it or not, whether it makes sense to us or not. I'm telling you folks, when, when I had four years left in the military, I still had a year, almost a year and a half left when I was called to Olivet. I could have been deployed to the desert as a new pastor. That's a little awkward. We didn't have Facebook Live. <laughs> We didn't have YouTube. But see, he has a purpose, just like he had a purpose for Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and the rest of the disciples. He has a purpose for each one of us. The question and the application is, are we going to listen? Are we going to answer the question like Nathaniel? You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Or, are we going to be stubborn... Are we going to plant our feet? Are we going to be like Bill was in 2008? Now, surely, God, this cannot be what you mean. Surely you have to be... No. No, you mean somebody else. You, you mean I need to help do something, but not that. He's called every one of us to be part of His purpose. And it's not because we're special... Okay? Contrary to what your parents may have told you, you're a special little snowflake just like everybody else. <laughs> That's not why God calls us. He calls us because He's special. Because His plan is a blessing for us, no matter how it ends up. Sometimes it ends up as a mess. You read... Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you read about the disciples. 
And you read about how they died. The only one who's recorded as traditionally not dying a martyr's death is John. And it's not because of lack of effort. (laughs) Boiled in oil. Stranded on a deserted prison island in his old age. God doesn't promise us a smooth path. He doesn't promise us an easy path. One of the best things I have seen coming out of many of my Christian friends online over the last couple of months is a repudiation of that post that says that God will never give you anything bigger than you can handle. Yeah, He will. (laughs) Yeah, He will. He promises to give us stuff bigger than we can handle. But He promises to be with us when we go through it. He can only be with us if we're walking with Him. If you've ever raised a child, you want them to hold your hand while you're crossing the parking lot, right? And I've done this, right? Hold my hand. I don't want to. Hold my hand. I don't want to. You will fight with that child all the way across the parking lot. Is there pulling that hand away from you. You'll make it across the parking lot safely. Right? So will the child. Because your attention is fixed and focused on them. Who needs to hold the hand? Most of the time it's the parents. Makes us feel better. Many times we're that stubborn child. God will walk next to us. And he'll have his attention on us. And he'll watch us all the way across that parking lot. It's a lot harder for him to catch us when we fall if we don't reach out to hold his hand.